Our scripture this morning comes from Genesis 2, 4 through 17. Please stand for the reading of God's word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the days that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there, there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome to Grace in Peace Church. It is a pleasure to have you here and and, uh, if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you and get to know you. The other thing is, is, uh, because we're going through the book of Genesis, a lot of questions come up that maybe are hard to answer while I am preaching. And so maybe you have some questions, especially about gender, sexuality, LGBTQ issues, and different things like that. And so what I want to do is invite you next week, next Sunday, not this Sunday, over at uh, Goat Patch Brewery, Brewery. We're going to start talking about those things. Last week, we sat down, there were 16 of us, and we talked about uh, the creation narrative, evolution, and, and different things like that. So it was a lot of fun. So come discuss with us, and we would love to kind of hear what you think and maybe push back and get some clarity on what is, what is Scripture saying particularly about these issues. And so we'd love to have you. But let us now turn to our attention to the text. How is your soul refreshed? When do you feel most alive? When you feel pain and hurt and sadness and depression, how are you healed? Where do you go? What do you do? When and where does uh, does God feel closest to you? How do you relate to him? What is paradise to you? What is most refreshing to your soul? That's a question that we all have to answer. For John Muir, it was in the mountains. It was his sanctuary. Specifically, he held Yosemite value in highest regard. He wrote, we are now in the mountains. They're in us. Kindling enthusiasm, making every nerve quiver, filling every pore and cell of us. Our flesh and bone tabernacle seems transparent as glass to the beauty about us. Neither old nor young, sick 
nor well, but immortal. You see, for John Muir, he felt his soul most refreshed in the mountains. There he experienced life and God was close to him. It was his paradise. The sacrament for him was, that, was every stunning vista that made him feel transparent to the beauty he found, uh, in, he found himself in. And that, that beauty would then be communicated inside of himself. The permanence and beauty of nature and creation came into himself, he believed. They communicated to him life, healing immortality but you know we're modern people i mean some people go out and they feel that in the mountains but maybe you're a modern person and the modern person they feel their soul relieved and refreshed whenever they log on to amazon and the blue light of the screen fills the worshiper's eyes and heart with anticipation, scrolling through the digital aisles of possibilities and reading, about the rev- reading through reviews and experience of others is almost religious. Then comes the time of decision. You found the one, the one whom my heart longs for, and with one click, you're sent into a frenzy through the sacrament of one-click purchasing and the sign is a confirm is a confirmation email from the vendor and the modern person is brought closer to what we think will satisfy their desire only the free two-day shipping separates me from bliss and healing even if it's (laughs) band-aids and to have that would mean relief in life right but maybe You live on the sanctuary of a dating app where you present yourself with a perfect profile, a photo that is only slightly airbrushed, a profile description that is only slightly exaggerated, and then the sacrament is the notice that someone has swiped right and you get the notification that you've been matched and it communicates to you that you are deemed worthy, that you're desirable and in it you have life or maybe it's this the setting of the sanctuary of the gym you know every glance of the opposite sex confirms oh yeah i'm getting swole uh maybe it's the perfect calves perfect glutes perfect pecs these are all directions to paradise with every bench press rep every gym selfie pose We are closer to eternal life, we feel. Or maybe it's the sanctuary of our bank account. We feel alive and confirmed every check of our bank account. One step closer to financial shalom. I heard a laugh probably because they're like, it it looks like my bank account's heading to financial hell. And so I I can understand that one too. You see, no matter who you are, whether you're a Christian, skeptic, Buddhist or dance music philosopher like Rihanna, we all long to feel God. We hunger to have God close to us. We want to worship. We want to feel him. We need healing. We all desire something to communicate life and relief to us. We all long for paradise. In humanity, we have a collective memory, a collective hunger to see this world healed. We know that everything is not the way it was meant to be. That's why we have civil rights movements. 
That's why we have Me Too movements. That's why we have everything like that, because we know functionally, whenever we look at this world, it is not the way it ought to be. And how in the world do we get back to paradise? So every person, functionally, in some way, is trying to get back to paradise. And here before us is laid out what paradise looks like. It's probably the most consistent thing people are always communicating to me is that they want to experience God. They don't necessarily just want information in the head. If they wanted information in the head, I would just give them a Bible and say, here you go. Get it. But what people want is they want to be healed. They want real life. You know, and it's not just an apologetic argument for God's existence, but to experience Him. And in the beginning with the story, we see that humanity was made to live in a dependent relationship on Him. That they were to feast on Him for their source of life. And that is how we were created to have life. That would have been paradise for us. Adam was created to live in this paradise And worship was where God had promised to meet with and communicate with his people. He's the initiator of this relationship. We see this story is different from chapter 1, right? It's here in chapter 2. It uses a different name for God. The sequence seems to be out of order. It seems to focus on day 6, but in the beginning it sounds like we're in day 3. But what I have to tell you is that the narratives are linked, but not necessarily in this beautiful sequential order that you want it to have, because the author is trying to get across something different. Here are some of the links. Uh, we notice that it says in one text, it says in, in verse 4, and, and this is the day that the Lord God had made the earth and the heavens. It starts off in chapter 1, heavens and earth, and so it gives you this nice little envelope that these two are put together. More than that, probably the best person to understand the scriptures was some guy named Jesus, right? And what did Jesus do? He links them together whenever he was asked about marriage. He says, oh yeah, you heard it said, he made male and female in his image. And for that reason, and then he, so he jumps to chapter 2, you're like, what are you doing in chapter 2? You know, I'm in no position to tell Jesus how to read, read the Bible, read, read his own words. So, you know, just go for it. And so he says, for this reason, the man shall leave, leave his father and mother and become one flesh. And so he uses both narratives as one narrative. He uses both stories as to say one thing. And so he links them together. And so we, and then we also have different words such as land and different things like that. But, Humanity was created for a relationship with God. Uh, For a theological nerd like me, you're probably like, oh, he's going to talk about covenant theology. Check this out. Yes, yes I am. Um, (laughs) Covenants usually follow a bit of a pattern, right, in which God or a, a greater ruler will make a relationship with a lesser ruler. And so we see this kind of pattern here in chapter 2. Notice that there's an identification of covenant partners in the day in which the Lord God had made man. And then it talks about uh, here the Lord God. So it gives him his covenantal name. There's a historical prologue. So there's some, some history given here. Then we have a suzerain, the great, the, you know, you're like, 
these are crazy words, man. Uh, suzerain. You don't need to know that. I, I don't know why anyone needs to know what the word suzerain is for. Anyway, suzerain is the great, great, uh, great king. And then a vassal is a lesser king. You don't need to know that. There's stipulations in this. And then there's also signs or sacraments of the covenant. And a covenant is the way that God works his salvation out into time and space. He brings his promise through these relationships in which he initiates in order to bring redemption to the whole world. So, instead of giving you those points like that and weird theological rigor, I'm a preacher. So I'm going to give you six points. You're like, a six-point sermon? What is this, the 1800s? No, it's okay. It's six, six points that alliterate, okay? Because I'm a preacher. So, okay, preacher boy, what do you got? So there's the setting, the sanctuary, the sovereign, the steward, the stipulations, and the sacrament. You're like, oh my gosh. Yeah, so get a pen. Uh, the setting. Like any good story, it starts with the setting. We are introduced to, the mar- to, to this kind of marker that will divide the rest of the book of Genesis. It says, these are the generations. And if you follow the book of Genesis, there's these things that start with, these are the generations of so-and-so. And it then tells the story of so-and-so. And here is the, are the generations of the heavens and the earth. So it opens up with a bigger view. So it's talking about the heavens and the earth. All of cosmos together. That's all of us. That's all y'all. That's our story. And so these are the gener- generations. And it situates the reader to, for, to understand what's coming next. It serves as a bit of a historical prologue for the relationship between God and man. It is called the day that the Lord God had made the, he- the earth and the heavens. It is to link them. But this focus then, it turns, notice it goes from instead of heavens and earth, it goes earth and heavens in order to focus us where? On what's going on the ground, earth. Verse 5 on first glance, tells us that there was not anything growing yet. So some believe that this is the third day, but the author goes to lengths to point out the problem is that the earth could not sustain life, that the problem was there was no farming going on. There was nothing going on, and that it says it had yet to rain. And this term is generally for uh, the rainy season. You know, whenever crops grow, you need a rainy season. Well, it hadn't happened yet. And so we're waiting for that. So it, it is a, a phase that is waiting for seasonal rains or floods. And irrigation, though, is it, so farming would have been dependent on irrigation where you would dig rows. But notice that it is God who causes a spring or a mist to come up out of the ground to water it all. So the setting is negative, though. It's not put together. It's not pristine. And then it says, the Lord God, he planted the garden. He's the one who did it. And so it wasn't the cultivation of man, but rather man pattering, pattering, patterning, patterning, patterning is what little babies do. Patterning, patterning uh, themselves and their work life after him. Because he's the one who put the garden. And so... This is the negative state, and the man in their setting, they are to understand that they are to bring this unruly world under the rule and reign of God, the setting. 
But now let's go to the sanctuary. After the Lord makes man, God makes a place for him. The description of the garden would have been familiar to the common ears at the time. The garden appears to be a meeting place with God. It is a place of worship. It is a place where you receive life. The garden here is termed generally for walled gardens, kind of like a park is what it looks like in the ancient Near East. So God, though, he walks in Eden, as we see in Genesis 3.8. He talks to the man there in Genesis in the garden. And what we see is that in the tabernacle, God walked with his people in Leviticus 26.12. Moses spoke with God as a man speaks to another man. And it says that in 2 Samuel 7, that God in the tabernacle, the meeting place with God, he walked, he he went with his people. He walked amongst them. And so this idea of God in a particular place is that God is walking with them. Uh, Later, we also see that it is in the east. Sanctuaries and places of worship were usually on the east side. And you entered into the temple on the east side. Why? Why? Because the places like the Nile, uh, whenever you have the uh, uh, Nile in the center, on one side would be the place of the dead, which was the west side. Uh, nothing about Colorado Springs, on, in, don't read into it. On the west side, there was death, right? And so that was sort of the place of the dead. But uh, the place where the sun rose on the east, that was the place to experience life. And so you'd enter in through this east side. The same, uh, a menorah or lampstand, which would be in the temple or tabernacle, would also symbolize the tree of life. It was a con- the tree of life was also a common decoration in the tabernacle, and it was drawn and painted there. There was also a river flowing in the garden. Notice that this river was a place that gave source to the rest of the rivers, which everyone thought gave life. So this is the primary river. This is the source of life is in the Garden of Eden, the meeting place with God. If you're going to have life, you had to meet with God in this place, it says. This is the sanctuary. Here's a river. If you go to uh, Revelation 22, there's the river of life. If you go to Exodus or, uh, Ezekiel 47, there is a river. But then there's this gold, bedillium, and onyx, and they're mentioned also as the tabernacle decorations and decorations in the temple as well. You see, all sanctuaries in the Bible resemble this one, the garden, until the temple city in Revelation 22, when the whole earth will be God's sanctuary. There are many sanctuaries in today's world, think of these places you know the sanctuary of social media there some people have the hit of dopamine that they just need and it is worshipful with every affirming click and like we have life or maybe the gym the sanctuary of the mountains but here's what i say with those things they're good things they could be refreshing things. They could be fun things. You could have lots of laughs on social media. But all those things are little, just little hints 
And it can't possibly satisfy the hunger that you need, the true sanctuary where you really need to go. And the true substance of it, it says in the New Testament that the true sanctuary then is God with his people, the church. And he meets and communicates himself in bread and wine to his people. The true sanctuary is wherever God is in a particular place. The church is the temple of God's spirit, the place to meet him. You know, and so the garden is to be seen as a special place to be refreshed and experience life. But uh, I don't know if you've ever been a non-Christian in church. Uh, that has been my experience. But you also, you come to church and you often feel like judgment. You don't feel good about coming to church often. And often you feel like this isn't the place to be close to God. But if I, you know, go to church, I, I don't want to be close to God here. I could be close to God up in the mountains. If I go to church, I go to church to feel guilty. That's, you know, like, that's, that's what people come to church for at times. But is that true? The belief is that Jesus, though, in Christianity, Jesus took judgment for us. So why are we at times delving judgment out and just like, hey, have a little judgment on everybody else? thinking that we're superior. Rather, this is a place where we are to experience Jesus, God close to us. And he does come to you. And it becomes close as your skin, closer than your skin when you eat and drink of God as he gives himself spiritually in this meal. And so the sanctuary. Now what about the sovereign in ancient Near Eastern practice, covenant-making occurred between a great king and a lesser king. And the lesser king was put into service for the greater king. And so we see that the Lord uh, here that uses his covenant name, his covenantal name, Yahweh, which means I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I will be with you as I was with, by, with your fathers, he says to Moses in Exodus 3. And so he uses his covenant name, because he's making an arrangement. He is a greater king making an arrangement, making a relationship with this lesser king. But notice that God here, the Lord, he is the initiator, the creator of this relationship. And so relationship or the way to get to God is not me initiating to God, but God initiating with us. It is not me getting my life together and cleaning myself up before I can go to church, but rather, it's God meeting you. Period. Right where you are. That's why we confess our sins. We confess together because we, are, we need healing. We need Jesus. And the great prerequisite is not that you initiate and you get your stuff together, but God has initiated to you and initiated with you. And so he is the creator, and he, just as he gave instructions for his tabernacle, he gives instructions for his garden. The Lord is presented like a potter with clay. Notice it says that he takes him out of the dust, and he forms, and God works, almost as if with, he had hands, forming you and me, forming humanity, and he breathes life into this creature, and it becomes a living being. 
It does not say that he became a living soul and he breathed his soul into him, but he says that he breathed into this lump of clay and it became living. We're not Gnostics that believe that you have a soul and a body, but rather that you have a body and soul as one thing. So your body is you. And you are your body. And God breathed into you. And you became a living being. And part of that living living is that you have a hunger and a thirst for God. That you are dependent on him. That you need him. That you want him. But he's careful when he makes you. He breathes his own breath into the man to animate him and give him a hunger for himself. And it does not say that of any other creature in the Bible. It says that they are living beings, yes, but only humans, only the man, in which Adam is the archetype for all humanity, was breathed into and are animated by the life of God. That means we are dependent on him and we need him for everything. He gives the man a mission and he binds him to himself and he, and he does this through a relationship. God says, you know, be fruitful, multiply. Then he tells him, guard this, guard this place. Keep it. Expand it. Make it look the way I desire it to look. Make the rest of the world like this garden so I may dwell with you. And that was the mission. And God binds himself. It means if this mission doesn't happen, someone will die. Someone will die. Either you will die, or, as the Christian story goes, we know the rest of the story that God himself and Jesus Christ dies for him. So all orthodox theology, creation, recreation, is always God initiating, God coming down. It is not humanity getting ourselves together and going to get to God. God is the true king. You are not the master of your own fate. You cannot save yourself. You cannot clean yourself up enough to make yourself good enough. It is only by God's grace. And so who are these stewards? You and I are like the stewards. Formed by God, breathed and animated by God, the steward is given this royal status, but with a mission to represent God's wishes on earth by working and expanding his sanctuary so that the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. The man is not so much an agricultural worker as he is actually a priest through his agricultural work. And so he represents God to creation through his working, his keeping, through his pruning, through his tilling. So what does this mean for you and I here in the 21st century? It means that the electrician demonstrates and is a priest of God in a certain way whenever he gets the lights on. It means that we... Uh, expand the garden and to carry out our priestly duties by doing things such as being a mechanic, a plumber, a doctor. This too is ministry. If the ministry for the man was to garden, keep the garden in a way that showed God's goodness, care, and love for the world, that he is to priestly show this through his work. And so this means this. 
uh, your work as a lawyer is ministry. And your ministry sometimes is to keep people safe from things like missiles. Okay? And that is work. You help people buy real estate. You do things like that. And guess what? That too is ministry. It is expanding God's rule and reign in every avenue of life. And we're to do it his way and not in the way of consumerism. The steward, though, he's dependent on the Lord for all of life. This steward, if he was to uh, keep being refreshed, to have ability, to have power, he was to uh, keep living God's way to do things according to his word. And it's not a result of performance, but it was a relationship by grace. Then there's these stipulations. Okay, stipulations. God says, you may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You know, by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, that they demonstrated, or they would demonstrate, that they could be independent of God, that they can make their own moral decisions. And one of the interesting things, though, whenever you see, it was, it was appealing. It was appealing. It was good for knowledge, is what the serpent says. It was like a little dirty little trick. Yeah, of course it was good for knowledge, because whenever you disobey somebody, you have a really, really keen knowledge of, uh, of, uh, of something, right? You gain wisdom, this way. Uh, how do I say this? Uh, my kid, if he goes running around with a fork and there's an outlet and he tries to put it in the outlet, and you know, I'm like, don't do that. Because in the day you surely do it, you'll surely get shocked. And of course, you know, what do they do? They're like, yeah, sure, whatever. They suddenly learn through experience in a particular way. They have a knowledge of being shocked. And there's two ways he could have done it. He could have gained knowledge just by listening to dad. Or he could gain knowledge by shoving the fork in the outlet and seeing what happens next. My son has never done that, by the way. But you can imagine. And so this steward was to be dependent on God for all knowledge. So to take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would say, I could do it myself. It was cosmic rebellion. It's like saying, I want to be the great king dependent on myself. I've got it. And don't we all do that? We all communicate that way. And so we seek knowledge and we eat of our independence. It's not necessarily magical, this tree, but it communicated something to them. And then we see this sacrament. A sacrament is an ordinance instituted by God to communicate by sensible signs our relationship to him. And in the garden, there's this confirming sacrament. There is this tree of life that was in the garden. And it is understood by theologians that that the man, he could have continued in his relationship just by following the Lord, and he could have been confirmed when he took the tree of life. 
And the tree of life, it says in uh, the book of, of Revelation, it says the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, meaning it is complete, it is everything you need, it gives you everything you desire, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The tree of life was to heal. It would to confirm the life that is dependent on God onto someone forever. Not that we somehow become independent of God. You never become independent of God. You depend on him for every breath. But you would always need him. And so it is a sacrament that communicates the life of God to the recipient. And that only through Jesus on the cross, we read that he was the one who was cursed by being hung on a tree. And we are able to come to that tree because the curses of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil did not pass on to me, but the curses of eating of the tree, of rebelling against God, came on Jesus himself. And so on the garden, the true garden, we see Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, crying out, let this cup pass from me. Instead of getting life from God, he gets something else. He drinks of the cup of the wrath of God. And on the cross, he's the one who gets it. So do you ever hope to be close to God? Well, the sacrament here is the way that you become close to God because he promises to be present in this, with you, close to you, closer than food or drink could ever get to you. Closer than your skin. And in that, what happens is we transfer our certain death onto him and his life gets transferred onto us. And a sacrament communicates the life of God into a person. The life we desire, the life we want. He lived in perfect relationship with God, but then he gets our death. You see, Jesus lived the perfect life. He had it all. He had the perfect life. He had relationship with God, everything you ever yearned for. He was close to God. Lived in perfect relationship with him. And on the cross, he loses it all. And you switch places. And so sacrament is saying, yeah, I believe what this communicates. I feast on his righteousness so I can be close to God because he was taken apart and he was taken out. One of the ways that this works was Gino Bartali. He was a very successful cyclist for Italy prior to World War II. He won the Giro d'Italia twice in the Tour de France, and he was celebrated by everyone. He had freedom, success, everything you could want it. He had the life. But he used his life not for his selfish gain, because when World War II broke out, Gino Bartali continued riding, but he was doing something in secret. Every training ride over the Alps, he was a courier, carrying secret documents and forged documents to get Jews across Italy. And what he was doing 
was that he was transferring, in a certain sense, their certain death sentence onto him. Because if he is caught, he will die. And he was using his life and his freedom to transfer it to them. He used his freedom, his star power, everything that was good, to give them freedom. Gino Bartali was never caught. He was never caught. And many people were free. And they feasted on his success to save them from death. See, he leverages his success to transfer their condemnation from them to himself and in turn transferring the good success to them. And the tree of life was to communicate and transfer the life of God to confirm to you life forever. And in Jesus Christ, we see the one in whom our death was transferred onto him and his life is transferred and communicated onto us and it is given to us in this meal. Do you want to be close to God? His appointed way is not that you get yourself together and that you experience him on a mountaintop, but no, he comes through broken bread that symbolizes his broken body. You want paradise? You want life? You want healing? Then you get it through poured out blood, which is symbolized in wine and communicates to you that this is spiritually true. That his life was poured out for you. And that you can have paradise. It is not that we get to heaven, but that heaven comes to us in Jesus Christ. And comes through us through sacrament. And we receive it by faith. Jesus is the true tree of life. Come to bring healing to the nations. He is the true paradise that has come to you. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, I pray that you would meet us in this sacrament, meet us in this meal, and communicate yourself to us that your life was broken, that your blood was poured out for our healing. And I pray that we would be healed, body and soul now, that we would feed on the true tree of life, the true river of life, the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, give us life now in Jesus Christ who lives with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally forever. The source of all life. Be with us now. Transform us now by the power of your word and the sign of your sacrament. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord be